Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. I've always been a little bit interested in introductions of people. Uh, you know, you, you've been there. You've been to lots of events where uh, maybe it's a speaker or there's somebody neat that's there and, and there's an introduction. And uh, it's always interesting for that. Personally, I don't like introductions for me. So if I'm speaking somewhere, it's like, okay, just tell them I'm speaking. Let me get up and say it. So that's good enough for me. But it is kind of interesting when you go and you hear an introduction. Today is going to be a little bit of an introduction, but it's probably to somebody that I know you've heard about. (laughs) I know you have. Uh, The introduction is to a man named John that uh, has written parts of the Bible. So hopefully through this introduction, hopefully you'll get to know him a little bit better and, and maybe get to see what he's writing and why. Uh, I'm hoping I can communicate somewhere in here uh, why I think it's really, really significant to study this at this time, and um, and hopefully we can do that. Let's think about John. This is John, the apostle that was called by Jesus. Um, interesting fact, he wrote the last five books of the New Testament that were written chronologically. Okay, they're not the last five in the Bible because he wrote the Gospel of John and that's the fourth one in the New Testament. So there's 23 after that. So it's not like the last five books of the Bible. Um, But he he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the book of 1 John and also 2 John and 3 John. So he wrote all those. Those were the five books that he wrote and he wrote them all after the year 85 AD, um, most of the rest of the New Testament had already been written 20 years prior to that. And uh, ask me later, and I'll tell you why I think he wrote a lot of that, but uh, we'll get into some of that here. John, John the Apostle. In the Greek, his name would be Johannes, and in the Hebrew, it was Johannan. <clears throat> and his name in the Hebrew literally means Jehovah is gracious. And that's kind of cool because I think it wasn't from the beginning, but I think John, the apostle, uh, became a very, very gracious person. Uh, He lived to be quite old, and uh, I think he uh, exhibited that in great ways. We hopefully will see that. You know, in the New Testament, there are five guys mentioned named John. So there's five of them. There's John the baptizer. That's probably one you know the best. John Mark, also a follower of Christ. There was one named Jonah or Jonas. Uh, He was the father of Peter, but that also is the name John. There was a John that was a relative to Annas, the high priest. You can read about him in Acts chapter 4, verse 6. And then there's this one, John the apostle, John the son of Zebedee. Remember that? Do you remember Jesus talking about John and James? In fact, He gave them a nickname early on that is quite interesting. He called them the Sons of Thunder. And uh, 
I know uh, one of our local churches has a really neat gospel group that calls themselves the Sons of Thunder, and they're good. They're really cool and neat guys. I love them all. But I don't think Jesus used it as a real complimentary term when he, when he called them that. I think he was sort of like, you guys are a lot of action, but not a lot of control. So um, some things we know about John is he grew up in the area of Bethsaida. That's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Some of the other apostles grew up near him, would have been Philip and Andrew, his brother, and Peter. Uh, and I would say there's a really, really good chance that they were friends and knew each other. They were at least acquaintances growing up. His mother's name was Salome. Uh, and some think that she may have been a sister to marry the mother of Jesus which then would make them cousins, although I'm not totally convinced of that, but it's possible. We know that he had at least the one brother, James. Um, James was uh, the one who was executed by Herod Agrippa in the year 44 AD. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember when Peter and James were both in prison and Peter was let out, but James was beheaded. It's most likely that John's parents were somewhat well-to-do. Reasons you would think that. Mark chapter 1, verse 20 uh, tells that they either had servants or at least a business with hired hands working for them. So their father, Zebedee, would have been someone who owned probably a fishing business and had employees and was able to help people there. Another reason to think that they were well-to-do is that Mother Salome supported the ministry of Jesus. She financially helped support that. And when Jesus passed away, she was one that purchased spices and brought them for the um, embalming process. During that time of the uh, crucifixion, we learned that John somehow was acquainted and knew the high priest, which the high priest in their day was usually somebody who was part of the upper class, somebody really in the establishment uh, of the religion. And so for him to know him well enough to be allowed to come in and observe the trials and all that stuff uh, indicates that maybe they were a little bit better off than some people as well. He would have received a very thorough Jewish training, but John's training was at home. Now, as soon as I say that, and, and I admit that he didn't have formal training like one of the scribes or Pharisees would, you can start to say, oh, okay, he was homeschooled, and that's okay, that's nice, but maybe he didn't have all the... Any Jewish young man in their day had to memorize the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books they had to memorize, and... Um, that's something I'm going to guess that there's not too many of us here who have ever done that. I've read it, but it was difficult. So uh, it's no, it's not difficult to read. It's but none of us have done anything like that. So as soon as we say the guy's not formally trained, I, I wouldn't put him down too far. You know, the guy was able to memorize that. So um, pretty good stuff. There's a chance that he was one of the disciples of John the Baptizer. In John chapter 1, verse 35, it tells about how John the Baptizer had two disciples that were with him, and he introduced to them the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
they were, there were two that were with him. He announced, this, look, there's Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He's going to be that Lamb sacrifice uh, for our sins. One of those disciples is named in the Gospel of John as Andrew. The other one's not named. So we don't know. But you know what? That was pretty normal for writing the way John wrote. He often would not mention himself. In fact, most of the other time when he refers to himself in his writings, he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. Uh, he wouldn't even use his name. He was very close to Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. He was chosen as one of the apostles. And he was one of the very first people to see the empty tomb when Jesus rose again. That's pretty cool. I mean, now millions of people go to Israel to go and see what they think might have been the tomb that he walked out of. John was there. He saw it. He was an eyewitness of that. Eventually, when the church got started, Peter, James, and John were the early leaders of the, of the church in and around Jerusalem. Uh, there's no mention of John in the New Testament after Acts chapter 8. Um, that's the and the book of Acts records the church history, so you don't see him in there. So it's hard to know what all he was doing. We do know that he spent his later years in the city of Ephesus, and he had an extremely significant ministry there. And that ministry really was a unique, significant place. Listen to some of the previous leaders that were leaders in Ephesus: the Apostle Paul started it. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla were significant there leading. I, I think when Paul left Ephesus, they probably held things together for a while. Um, probably most of us don't know Trophimus. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about him. He's not mentioned much in the New Testament. There was a family of people um, whose name was Onesiphorus, and people in their family probably part-timed it and held things together. And then ultimately, um, Timothy, young Timothy, became a pastor at Ephesus. So you know what? They had a pretty good lineup of, of leaders uh, who were there. And then, of course, John ends up there at the end of the century. We believe that um, John possibly died around the year 100 AD. Some put it as early as 95. Uh, it was obviously after he wrote the book of Revelation, um, which most people put at 95, 96. So um, because he lived till maybe the year 100, he, he clearly, uh, by a long way, outlived all the other disciples and apostles by far. I don't think any of them came within about 10 or 20 years of him. So he was the only one, and he outlived a lot of his peers. So now we're talking about 70 years after the crucifixion. There weren't a lot of people who were still around who knew all about it. <clears throat> John was early on um, somewhat intense, had a little bit of a vigorous uh, nature. He could be intolerant at times, and he was also somewhat self-ambitious. Remember um, mom asking that they could sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus and his kingdom, and, and they argued often about who was going to be the greatest, and John was often in the middle of that, which is kind of interesting because I suggested earlier that he became, um, as the name says that John means Jehovah is gracious, and I think he became gracious by his um, being around um, Jesus. 
Somebody wrote and characterized the people, the leaders this way. Paul is the apostle of faith, and Peter is the apostle of hope, but John's the apostle of love. And I'm going to say that's absolutely true. That is definitely true. <clears throat> when you read First uh, John and, and, and his writings into the second and third John, you see this is an elderly man who's been a pastor of a leading church for a long time. He's been around. He's an eyewitness of, of Jesus and a close friend of Jesus. And he has a deep love for his people. In fact, nine times he mentions, <clears throat> he calls uh, the people that he's writing to, he calls them my little children. He, he's so attached to them. And that's a very affectionate term. So uh, is he qualified to tell us some things that we really need to know here about the church and about uh, the trends of where things are going? I would say yes. He was a Palestinian. Uh, he was an eyewitness of everything about Jesus and a very, very close associate who Jesus loved. And here's what he was seeing in, in the Christian culture of his day. And I think there's parallels to today. He's, he noticed that Christians were loving the evil things of the world. They were starting to become blended with the world so much. They weren't distinct like Christ had told them to be. Christ told us that uh, the thing that's going to mark our distinction is our love for each other. But as he saw time going on, he noticed that that wasn't as true as what it should be. They were becoming more attached to the world. He also saw them fighting with each other. And um, and maybe that has to do with some of the false teaching in there. And some of the people were doubting their own salvation. <clears throat> Would you say that that trend is there today? That we see Christians today that are becoming, they look more like the world than they do like Christ? Or that maybe they're, um, you know, there's false teaching going on today, or maybe some of them are just doubting and struggling with their salvation. It's It's tough. So under the false teaching, there were a couple things that rose up in their culture. The main thing was uh, Gnosticism, <clears throat> which the word uh, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word uh, Gnosis, <clears throat> which has to do with knowledge, has to do with knowledge. So there was a group of people beginning to teach that the hope for salvation was to grow in your knowledge. You needed to have head knowledge and you needed to know things. And if you take that to its extreme, by the way, that's avoiding the uh, salvation through Christ. It's like, well, no, you need to know about that, but you just intellectual things is where the knowledge was. And when they looked at the word of God, sometimes they started looking at the word, hoping to find a deeper meaning there which led them down all kinds of paths. They didn't always take the simple, straightforward what the word was saying. They were looking for something behind something all the time. They also had a, a slice that uh, they thought that physical things matter was evil and spiritual things is good. I think we agree with some spiritual things, but they just assumed that all physical stuff, all matter was evil. And when you took that to the extreme, it led you down one of two paths. One would be that you become ascetic, which means you try everything you can to conquer your flesh uh, and fight off sinful desires. 
Have you ever read about the Middle Ages and some of the monks and how they would torture themselves, you know, beat themselves, slice themselves, do deny themselves in hopes of getting rid of their sin? And it's like, if I can just beat this physical body into submission, then maybe I can be spiritual. That's what asceticism did. The other extreme was the libertines who said that, um, well, you know what? If everything matter and physical is evil and sinful, then that doesn't matter in the, in the greater sense. All that matters is the spiritual. So I can do whatever I want. And they went after every pleasure, every extreme of um, satisfaction that you can think of. <clears throat> there was another thing that came out of that, and that is um, dasticism, which is that uh, there was a belief that because matter is evil, therefore God could not have a physical body. He couldn't exist in a body, so therefore Jesus did not have a real body. Therefore Jesus was um, someone who you just thought was there, you perceived was there, wasn't real. That's, that's how dangerous some of that became. John was wanting to warn uh, believers about some of these things that he was seeing come up. So why would John write 1 John? What was, he, what was his interest in writing that? He's writing to the believers. He's not arguing against the Gnostics. That's not what he's doing. He addresses them but he's writing to believers, warning them about the Gnostics. So here's, here's some of what he says in, in 1 John 1, 4. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. So he's writing in order that our joy would be complete. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So he's writing so that they will not sin. We'll look at that whole concept next week. Then um, in chapter 2, verse 26... It says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So he's trying to help them avoid some of the false teaching that's coming out around them. And then in 5.13, which I think is going to be the a key verse, he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you can know that you have eternal life. This is a personal letter written by an aged pastor Christian leader, <clears throat> and he's writing to mature Christians who he knew really, really well. <clears throat> this will be sort of a parenthesis here, but uh, I wanted to share with you a, a really neat quote about inspiration of Scripture. Oh, I pushed the wrong, I know what I was doing wrong there. Here's what uh, Irvin Jensen not one of our Jensen's, but a good Jensen, a good Jensen, Irvin Jensen's a good Jensen. He said this, the word of God is ever living, always contemporary for the simple reason that God does not change and the basic needs of mankind remain the same throughout the ages. God does not change, we don't change. God is holy, we are sinful. God provides a way of escape, we need salvation. None of that changes. Uh, God's word is, I like his words, ever living, always contemporary. Uh, somebody way cooler than me once said that God's word is eternally relevant. And I like that. It is true. It's always relevant for us. So anytime you go to God's word, it's always going to be the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. 
So as we look through some of John's writings, if you read all of his, what he wrote, all five books, you're going to find out that he uses the word no, K-N-O-W. He uses that word 30 times throughout his writing. I shared with you, I just read a little bit ago from uh, 1 John 5.13, which says that he's writing these things so you can know that you have eternal life. I think that's a really key passage of Scripture. Um, it's very, very significant, especially for those who struggle with, uh, I just don't know, how can I be sure? Um, he's saying that you can know. You probably have heard people say, well, you can't know. Well, that's not true. If that's true, they have to rip this part of the Bible out because John says you can know that you are saved and that you have eternal life. Sometimes our struggle with that is more our struggle. It's not God's problem. It's our problem. We're not trusting what he says. We're not trusting what he's done. And um, we'll talk about that more in weeks to come. In the Gospel of John, uh, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31, he tells us that he's wrote about all these miraculous miracles, and there were some that he didn't even write about that happened. But he said, I write these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Gospel of John, he wrote that whole thing so that you can know that Jesus is God that he's the one that you can put your life and faith into. Here, in this letter, 1 John, he's writing so that we can know that because he is God and because we believe in him, that we do have eternal life. It's part of what he's given to us. Um, we can know that God answers prayer is what he's going to tell us in here. We can know that the Son of God has come. Two grand themes, I think I have those in your bulletin, that are in there. John, 1 John 1, 5, it says God is light. And twice in chapter 4, it says God is love. God is love. No qualifiers, nothing there to elaborate or anything. It's just love comes from God, and that's who he is. So I'm going to read to you the first four verses, and, uh, and then we're going to look at them just a little bit more careful. Here's 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So I call the first couple verses just basically the substance of what he's declaring to us. He's going to talk about eternity. He's going to talk about deity as Christ being deity. He's going to talk about humanity. And then he's going to talk about being an eyewitness to all that. You probably recognize we were going to have um, Rob reads scripture this morning, but he's on duty. And um, and we were going to read John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. Really the only parallel I was going to bring in. Remember John 1, 1, we went all through it before Christmas a couple times, um, where it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See how it starts here? That which was from the beginning. He's taking us right back to what he started with uh, 10 years earlier when he wrote the Gospel of John 
and he's taking us back. Jesus is the eternal God who was there at the very beginning, and now he's coming and saying, okay, so he who was there in the beginning, Jesus, who is God, who created everything, who is over everything, he's eternal, he's always existed, he always will exist. Let's go back to the theme of Jesus, John is saying here, and he's talking about his eternity. He tells us um, about his relationship with the Father, and he affirms that Jesus is God. Uh, here's a great verse, and I should have typed it out, but it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's in Jesus. Everything that is God is seen in Christ. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. <clears throat> Jesus is everything there is that is God. Whatever is God is Jesus. And there's nothing left out of him at all. He is the fullness, the completeness of deity. So John's affirming that for us here. And he talks about his humanity when he says he appeared and we've seen and testified to him. Um, he also uh, has, uh, I have some notes in your bulletin about how uh, Jesus had done no sin. In John chapter 8, verse 46, he says to the Pharisees, can you prove me guilty of any sin, any violation? And of course they couldn't. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it talks about how God had made him who knew no sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, but God made him sin for our sake so that he could bear that on the cross. And then here's my oops for the week. Uh, I wanted to put 1 Peter 1.16, not 3.16, um, but it's 1 Peter 1.16. I did that. Um, where it just says, be holy because I am holy. That's found also in Leviticus a couple other times in the Old Testament. You and I are really thankful, whether we know it or not, that that phrase says, be holy for or because I am holy. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say to us, be holy as I am holy. You be just as holy as I am. <laughs> he who knew no sin can't do it. That's not, it's not telling me how holy to be. It's telling me the reasons why I need to be holy. I need to be holy because I serve a holy God. I need to be pure in my life and, and in my thoughts and in my words and every other way possible. John was an eyewitness. That's what he's going to tell us all the way through there. He's going to remind us of that as we go through this letter, that he's an eyewitness explaining to us the incarnation of Jesus. He had had face-to-face -face communion with Jesus. He had personal experiences with Jesus. And then the words that you see, um, we heard, we seen, we touched. All those words are in the Greek uh, text called the perfect tense, which means um, it happened in the past and it has a continuous effect. So we heard uh, we heard his words, we heard his teaching that was in the past, and it still continues to impact us today. We've seen him with our eyes, we looked upon him. Uh, the Greek word there has to do with careful inspection, a personal investigation. I studied him deeply, and the impressions have stayed upon me now 60, 70 years later. And then he said, we touched him. And, and that word is only used twice in the New Testament. The other one I think I put in your bulletin, maybe. It's uh, Luke 24, verses 38 and 39. 
And it's when Jesus came back into the room to the disciples and appeared before him as a resurrected Savior, and he told them to touch or literally handle me. Come handle me. Does a ghost have flesh and blood? I have flesh and blood. Uh, I am real. That's what Jesus said. Well, the, the John said, we touched him. We handled him. We know he was real. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We know he is real. That's a reference to the risen Savior. He's reminding them that Jesus was not just real. He rose from the dead and brought life for us. He also was called the word of life. The word of life. He talks about, John's talking about, I'm writing about the word of life. I want to give you guys the word of life. And again, I think he's going back to John chapter 1. Remember where it was in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And later the word became flesh. It's the word logos. You know that word. It means an expression or communication. Here it says that word is the word of life. It's not just the living word. He is life itself. Everything about life, everything about life is about Jesus. He is the life. He's that eternal life. Uh, and when we say eternal life, that has two aspects, the quality of life and the quantity of life. The quantity just means it's forever. Uh, we have eternal life. It is forever. But the quality uh, with Christ is where we live. It's a glorious forever for us. Jesus is the message from God. <clears throat> These witnesses, John and all the others, you know, John was probably the only apostle who was not executed, martyred for his faith. All the others were. They all died because they, um, uh, because of their belief and following of Jesus. But John lived longer than all the others. But they were all committed to him, to Jesus, even unto death. Their life was committed. John was not formally trained, as I mentioned earlier, but he was very trustworthy, a very competent man. He had years of missionary, pastor, and leadership experiences. And then in um, this area, too, verses 3, verse 4, we see his purpose for while he's writing. He wants fellowship with the apostles and with the people of, of God together. God wants you to have a living fellowship with him. But not just with him, but with his children as well, with his people. Here it mentions in verse 3 about the Son Jesus and about Father, the Father God. Mentioned as two distinct people, uh, both of them being God in the Godhead. They were one in essence, equal in dignity, equal in deity. <clears throat> the cement that binds your fellowship together as a body of believers is not because we have things in common, not because we live in the same town, not because we wear the same clothes, have the same level of education, or any of that kind of stuff. It's our love for the Savior. That's what brings us together. That's what makes a church uh, and a fellowship. In verse 4, he says, We write this to make our joy complete. Complete, full, fulfilled. And uh, here it says, our joy. Some might say your joy, and, and that's okay. Uh, either way, I think it's pretty, pretty solid stuff. When you are sure of your salvation, you can have fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. You'll experience joy, and you can have victory over sin. How amazing is that? How amazing is that, that we can have 
fellowship with God, experience joy, and have victory over sin. Especially when we think about what and who we are, and yet we are received into a fellowship with God, and when we think about who He is, that's just amazing. God came in the flesh. He came to be known by us. He wants us to know Him so that we can experience the peace that comes from having our sins forgiven and the assurance that comes of having eternal life in Christ. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much this day for the, the great value of who Jesus Christ is. I mean, he's died. I mean, obviously, there's great value there. But value to us as individuals who have faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, because that belief, that faith, that life leads to eternal life for us. And it's all because of Jesus, nothing else, just him alone, who is our Savior. Thank you so much for your love, your grace that sent Christ to come to live for, to die for us, and to pay for our sins. God, may we, every moment of every day, be impacted by that and may it have great effect in our lives so that we can live to your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.